The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're learning about botany and the colorful science of gardening. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and my first guest is Ruth Cassinger. For the past five years, Ruth has focused her writing on the intersection of gardening, history, and science. She's the award-winning author of eight science and history books for young adults, and she blogs at gardenofmarvels.com about extraordinary plants and cutting-edge botany. She's also the author of A Garden of Marvels, How We Discovered That Flowers Have Sex, Leaves Eat Air, and Other Secrets of Plants. Good to have you here, Ruth. It's wonderful to be here. Now, you start out your book with a murder. And that, I find, is an unusual choice for a science book, isn't it? Well, it is, perhaps, for people who write academic science. But I'm a person who writes about science for the average reader and often, the, in my case, the average gardener. And I realized that I had a kumquat tree that I really loved. I'd had it for eight years and it was in a pot, and in the winter it would live in my conservatory. We have a little conservatory on the back of our house, and in the summer it would go outside, and for eight years it thrived, and then it gradually was going downhill, and I did everything that I could think of to help it out. I added fertilizer, I watered more carefully, uh, made sure that I kept the bugs off of it, but it just was going downhill, and it dropped all of its leaves except for the very, very tips of the branches. And I thought, this is just terrible looking. And I looked at my, what my husband does. My husband is a, an, more of an outdoor gardener. And I realized that he pruned his rose bushes and a crepe myrtle tree pretty severely in the spring, late winter, early spring. And pruned them back to about two feet, and then they burst into leaf and extended their branches. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. I think I'll do that. And so I gave my beloved kumquat tree a rather severe pruning, fully expecting everything to come back. But in fact, I had murdered her. I had killed her. Her branches turned brittle and brown. And I realized that I needed to rethink my way of gardening and that instead of relying just on hang tags on plants and maybe a how-to book or two, that I might be a better gardener if I understood something more about the way plants work so that I could understand what is the difference between a rose bush and a kumquat tree. Why can we prune rose bushes dramatically, but not kumquat trees? So there I was, average gardener, taking up a science project. Well, as someone who only recently started to be able to keep plants alive, I, I definitely understand the desire to figure out exactly what you're doing wrong. So how did you decide what exactly you wanted to investigate? Because botany is a big field. <laughs> It is, and I started off thinking, mm, I will pick up a 
botany textbook, and I will read through it and figure this out. But I realized uh, pretty quickly that that really was not working for me. It wasn't that interesting. There weren't any stories. And I had the feeling that I was back in school and uh, was in danger of doing what I did then, which was read the textbook, memorize it for the test, and then forget it. Right. Uh, so I thought, there's got to be a better, more fun, more engaging way to learn this. And because I'm very interested in the history of science, I decided to look into the early botanist discoveries of the way plants work and figured that if I could follow their path from no knowledge to learning the basics, that might work for me. And it turned out that there were a lot of interesting stories, stories that have either been lost or um, are just not well known, and some great characters. So that was what I decided to do, as well as talk to current gardeners and scientists and people who have really extraordinary plants that the plants in themselves were so engaging that the story of how they worked would also be engaging. It's interesting. Science seems to have had a, a much better handle on animals than it did plants from the earliest times. That's true. And, I, you know, I found that at first, you know, pretty puzzling because, after all, you know, we could go without eating animals and still survive, but we can't go without eating plants and still survive. So plants are actually more important to us uh, as uh, human beings than, than animals are. But what I discovered is that it's actually much easier, it was much easier for scientists to understand animals than it was for them to understand plants. I mean, just to use an example, you can take a frog and cut open a frog and see all of its organs. You see lungs, you see a heart, you see muscles, you can touch a muscle and with a pin and see it jump. You can see much of how it works in a fundamental way, but if you cut open a plant, you see almost nothing. You may see some tubes, there's bark, there's spongy stuff, but it gives you absolutely no clue as to how, how the plant works. And in fact, people for a long time didn't understand that exactly that plants were living beings and that they were not some kind, on the other hand, some kind of very primitive animal. So plants are actually much harder or were much harder for people to understand than animals. That's interesting that you mentioned uh, that people couldn't discern between plants and animals. It was hard enough for them to figure out what was living and non-living, uh, but plants and animals were, were even more difficult. Right. Even the non-living and the living was, was a difficult concept. Uh, one of the things that puzzled people and they, was the ability for miners to go into a mine and take out valuable stones or minerals, take everything out of the mine, close it down, and then discover that years later or decades later, they could go back and re-enter the mine, and lo and behold, there were more stones or minerals to take out. 
so they concluded that stones actually could grow very, very slowly, but that they were living. So you can see where the difficulties lay if you couldn't even decide that a stone was not a living being trying to discover exactly what a plant was, was hard. I mean, there were mosses that could go dry and look like they were dead for years. Then you add some water and they started to green up again. So what was living, what was dead, what was an animal, what was a plant? It was all pretty confusing. Can you talk a bit about the boromets? Because this is something I hadn't heard of. I love the boromets. The boromets was a creature that people believed in, certainly through the 1500s and into the 1600s. Travelers came back from Central Asia with tales of a plant that sprouted a tiny lamb from its central stalk. And the lamb, on top of the stalk, the stalk was flexible, and the lamb could lean this way and that way, and eat the grass underneath its body. And then after it had eaten all the grass, it died, and people would harvest the wool of this little lamb. And that, they believed, was the source of what we now know was cotton. So that European travelers would hear these stories and go on searches for what was known as the Boromets, which was the word for sheep in a in a Scythian language. And it wasn't until into the 1600s that the idea of a lamb growing out of a plant was finally scotched. There you have, again, a misunderstanding about the relationship between plants and animals. So when did we really start making progress in this field? It was not until the late 1600s that the very first botanists were able to look into a plant and see different kinds of tissue and begin to have an idea that a plant had a particular structure. The first two botanists were a, an Englishman, a minister and a doctor named Nehemiah Grew, and he was working in Coventry, and the other was a professor of anatomy in Bologna, Italy. And the two of them independently uh, discovered that there was structure to a plant, that inside the plant there were tubes that ran from the roots up through the body of the plant, up through the stems and the trunk, and into the leaves. They thought these, these tubes carried air because they thought that plants breathed like people, and they called these tubes trachea. Today, we call them xylem, X-Y-L-E-M, and know that they carry water and dissolved minerals from the soil to all the parts of the plant. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking to Ruth Kassinger, author of A Garden of Marvels, How We Discovered That Flowers Have Sex, Leaves Eat Air, and Other Secrets of Plants. 
Now, there is a, a ton of history in this book, and I'm not sure how to get to all of it, and I don't think it's actually possible. So let's do this. Uh, you've structured your books into sections on, on roots, leaves, and flowers, which is a lovely format to discuss them in, and so I'm going to steal it. Uh, so why start with roots? Well, here, no, here's a good tip for gardeners. Uh, the University of Colorado research indicates that if you're having trouble with your plants and getting them to be healthy, that about 80% of the problems with plants are due to problems with roots. And so even before I understood that, I just thought roots are the really the basis for the plant both to cling to the earth and also to get water as well as the minerals dissolved in the water. So I started off with roots. Well, what were the most interesting things you learned about roots? I would say that my understanding of roots before I started to learn about them was mistaken. I, I thought that all of the root system was busy taking up water and minerals, but the truth is that only a very tiny portion of the root system that you see is involved in taking up water and minerals. Much of the ability of a tree or a plant to suck up water is in the root hairs. And the root hairs, there are tens of thousands of them on a root tip. And that is the very, very small end of a root and those root hairs are responsible for pulling up mineral nutrition. I also discovered that the mass of roots, uh, if you're looking at a tree, the mass of roots is equal, at least equal and often much, much greater to the mass of the tree above ground. Can we actually go back to the to the root hairs, uh, and specifically the um, and I'm probably going to mangle this pronunciation, but the my, mycorrhiza, mycorrhizae, mm -hmm. right? Because I th I think you speaking about that actually helped me to diagnose one of my own murders. <laughs> well, you know, even though the root hairs, which are usually microscopic, are um, very powerful and very slender, so that they can get into tiny areas between particles of soil, they still are not enough to take care of the nutrition of plants. Uh, let me add that you know, on a rye plant that is maybe two feet tall, uh, a rye plant will have enough root hairs to go across the continent and halfway back if the hairs were laid end to end. So there are a lot of root hairs, but still it's not enough to nourish a, a plant. There are fungi in the soil that are called mycorrhizae. And these fungi look like little hairs themselves, tiny straws, and they're much smaller than root hairs. And they put one end of their little body in the root hair and the other end into the soil. And they can access even more water and mineral. And without mycorrhizae, uh, your plants are not going to survive. 90% uh, of plants do have these fungi. And, and I think you are recalling a story that I 
told about a, a plant that I had called a Buddha's hand, which is a little citrus tree. And I had planted that tree in a pot of sterile potting soil, which you often find in gardening centers. The sterile potting soil has got an advantage and it comes without any bacteria or viruses, but it also comes without any fungi. And I had a lot of trouble growing this plant and finally spoke to someone at, a, at the garden center who told me that the sterile potting soil doesn't have mycorrhizae and that it would be a good idea if I added some. And in fact, adding these fungi definitely saved the plant. Now, one of the things that I I really liked about your book is that you go back and forth between uh, these very accessible lessons in botany and discussions about how this looks practically on a broader scale. You spoke to a gentleman who uses plants with roots that hyperaccumulate nickel to decontaminate soil? One of the wonderful characters who I met in my travels around the country uh, and around even this area in Washington, D.C., is a a professor named uh, Dr. Rufus Cheney, and he works for a a government agency here. Um, And years and years ago, he discovered that a certain kind of plant could draw up nickel out of the soil uh, and this was a, quite an interesting discovery because nickel is a, is a valuable product for our economies uh, and economies around the world. And instead of mining for nickel, it would be possible to plant this particular alyssum plant and have it draw up nickel and sequester the nickel in its leaves. And he... Uh, worked hard to uh, breed a plant that would do that more efficiently and eventually licensed the rights to that plant to a company that was going to go into the nickel mining business. Although that business venture has yet to pan out for reasons that are not associated with the... The science. The technology. (laughs) Right. Yeah, right, with the science and the technology... It did have have interesting consequences in doing what we call phytoremediation. Around here in Washington, D.C., there is a university called American University. And 100 years ago, during World War I, American University allowed the Army to use part of its property to test chemical weapons and so a lot of chemical weapons were used and exploded and then ultimately buried on the campus of American University. Almost 100 years later, people were discovering some of those munitions were either rising to the surface or through testing, they discovered that there was arsenic from the weapons in the soil. And because of Rufus Cheney's research and understanding of the mechanics of sequestering minerals in plant leaves, he uh, and others discovered that a particular kind of fern called a brake fern could be planted at this contaminated site and the plants would draw arsenic out of the soil 
into the leaves, and then the ferns could be harvested and disposed of properly. So the ability of roots and stems and leaves to pull minerals out of the oil is kind of an untapped resource. Well, on to leaves, speaking of them. Can you take us through how science figured out photosynthesis? Can you give us a bit of an overview? Well, I'll, I'll do that in a really broad brush way. People had no idea what leaves were for, for the longest time. In the ancient Greek times, the best guess was that they were for hiding the fruit of trees and shrubs from marauding birds, or perhaps they were, you know, if you thought of a plant as something like a human being, perhaps leaves were like hair, they were kind of decorative. It wasn't until Joseph Priestley began to look at what air really is in the early 1800s that he began to have an understanding of the function of leaves. At the time, people thought that air was one one substance. It was an element like fire and earth and water. He and others were just discovering that air is composed of more than one substance. In fact, what he discovered was there are two components of air, at least in his early view, good air and bad air. And the good air was oxygen. And he discovered this in part by putting animals under a a glass cover, a glass upside-down bowl, and realized that they used up part of the air inside, and if he didn't rescue them at the very last minute, that they would die. One day, after having experimented with animals and also candles, he put a mint plant under this upside-down glass bowl, and fully expecting it would use up all the oxygen and die. Instead, the plant survived because, of course, plants take carbon dioxide out of the air and put oxygen into the air. And so Joseph Priestley was the first one to go, oh, plants are very different in this way than animals. Leaves create good air. Then over the course of the next 30 years, much of the additional evidence of how exactly uh, this process uh, worked and that it involved not only carbon dioxide but also water uh, became more clear as the scientists became more sophisticated. Uh, It was just at this time that Antoine Lavoisier was figuring out the very basics of chemistry and so understood that within 30 years that it took carbon dioxide and water to make sugars that provide the substance of a plant, all of its new mass. And you write a lot about photosynthesis, but um, I really do want to mention, just because we did talk about the boromats, can you talk about the slug that is part algae? Because this is for real, this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is a real chimera. This is a, an animal, a sea slug, that 
uh, lives off the coast of, you can find them in Florida, the Caribbean, and even uh, more in more northern places off the coast of Massachusetts. Slug is such an awful word. This is quite a beautiful little creature. It's only about an inch long, and it looks like a piece of a lettuce leaf. And it's a frilly piece of lettuce leaf. I think of it as looking like arugula. And it is a very unusual animal. When it's born, it is brown. It then takes a first meal of a particular kind of algae and turns green and then never has to eat anything but light again for the rest of its life, which is about nine months to a year. And it has chloroplasts inside of its body that do just what chloroplasts in plants do, in leaves do, which is use sunlight to turn carbon dioxide and water into sugar, into energy that it can use. And what is really particularly striking about this is that the algae that are in the sea slug are part of its being. The sea slug has genes that can manufacture and repair the chloroplasts. So it is genuinely part algae and part sea slug. So this process happens naturally in these sea slugs, but is this something that could be genetically modified to happen in other animals? That's a nice thought, but the reason that it works in the sea slug is, one, the slug is very tiny, and it is, after all, a slug, which means it doesn't move very fast and doesn't use a lot of energy. Uh, It's very thin, so sunlight can get to it on all sides. I actually had a similar idea and thought, well, what about me? Could I, if I had chloroplasts in my skin, could I live off of sunlight? And with the help of some scientists, I did the math and discovered that because, of course, I could only lie out in the sun on one, expose one side of me at a time, and because as a human being, as an animal, I have a lot more energy requirements than a plant does or a sea slug does, that it would take about a 90-hour day for me to uh, garner enough energy from sunlight to simply lie there in the sun. So I don't think we're going to be genetically modifying any animals to photosynthesize, unfortunately. This is Science for the People, and we'll be back with more of Ruth Kassinger, the author of A Garden of Marvels, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined by science writer Ruth Kassinger, the author of A Garden of Marvels. How we discovered that flowers have sex, leaves eat air, and other secrets of plants. 
So we haven't spoken about plant sex yet. And if I know anything about my listeners, that's what they want to hear about. Uh, So what's the background on how we determined how that happens exactly? Well, the background to this is that it took quite a while for anyone to understand how reproduction worked even in animals. Because sperm are so small and eggs are small, except for the eggs of chickens and ducks and and such, no one understood what it was from the male side that created a new being uh, or, or a new seed. So first they had to figure out sperm, and that couldn't happen until Leeuwenhoek discovered sperm under the microscope in the mid-1700s. Once he could see the sperm, then a big debate evolved about where did the, the new being come from? Was the new being in the egg or was the new being in the sperm? Because people didn't, had not yet imagined that it would take the two of them working together to create a new being. So for many years, that was the debate. There was a very interesting, and actually one of my favorite stories about this, is um, about a a scientist whose name was Spallanzani, and he wanted to figure out the answer to this question, and he decided to experiment with frogs' eggs and frog sperm to see whether the new being was in the egg or the sperm. And to do this, he took a bunch of frogs and made pants for them and put the frogs into pants. Then he put a female frog in the water and the female frog emitted uh, a string of what everyone recognized uh, as eggs that would later turn into tadpoles. The male frogs in their pants were introduced to the to the females and seemed to do what male frogs do, which is clutch the female and then something happened. And Spallanzani discovered that the uh, eggs did not, in general, become fertile and grow into tadpoles. So you, you would think that he would conclude that uh, sperm were necessary for the creation of tadpoles, but in fact, he he didn't conclude that. He concluded that some essence, perhaps the semen from the sperm, were was responsible. And this was because a few of the eggs did become tadpoles, and. Uh, in one of those funny ironies of of science, uh, he came to the wrong conclusion because of his scientific method. He had looked at the eggs to discover what was growing inside them, and he used either a a pencil or a, a needle to separate the eggs. And in doing so, he... Uh, encouraged the egg to clone, in in essence, to clone itself. So despite this wonderful experiment, he came up with the wrong conclusion. Ultimately, 
scientists got to, to the right answer, which was that sperm were necessary to create a new being. But when it came to a plant, they couldn't quite figure this one out because, uh, you know, there was no copulation. So what, what really happened? And, and the idea that pollen were, was responsible was very late in coming. Pollen was not considered equivalent to sperm. In fact, the, the very greatest scientists of the era thought that pollen was equivalent to excrement. One or two scientists did a few experiments in uh, Germany, and one man's name was Rudolf Kammerer, and he did write in the late 1600s that pollen was the equivalent of sperm. The idea that flowers had sex, though, was so abhorrent in that era, prevented anyone from, from grasping this, from, from doing any research or agreeing. And the reason it was abhorrent was uh, religious. The Virgin Mary was always or often pictured with flowers. Um, there, are Mary, there were Mary gardens where there would be a statue of Mary, uh, at a convent, and all around her would be beautiful flowers with whom she'd been associated over the course of many centuries. So the idea that Mary would be surrounded by sexual beings, uh, flowers that pollen was sperm and, and there was active sex going on, was really just repulsive. And it, it wasn't until a particular day in France, and that day was June 10th, 1717, that the word got out that flowers were really all about sex. On that day, a demonstrator at the King's Garden in Paris gave a lecture, and this man, Sebastian Veillon, was not supposed to be giving a lecture, he was not a professor. Uh, he was not of the proper class to be a professor. But he was a very experienced um, botanist. And the regular professor was going out of town, and Sebastian Veillon was asked to do this lecture to the medical students who would come into the garden to learn about um, the medical properties of plants. And Veillon understood Camerer very well. And he gave a lecture that morning on the sexuality of plants that was widely attended and well applauded by all the young men who were the medical students. Uh, it was a very funny and kind of outrageous lecture, uh, very bawdy because they all used spoke about plants uh, as if they were human beings having sex. When the professor came back, he was totally appalled, as was the French Academy of Science. And they, the whole thing might have been hushed up, except that they all had friends in Holland and England who loved the lecture and also understood that flowers are all about sex, and they had the lecture printed in several languages. And within 30 years... Uh, Linnaeus was developing a new classification system 
based on the sexual organs of flowers. So once the dam was broken, the word got out. Okay, so I love the history, and I love all your conversation uh, of genetic modification, which we haven't really touched on in this interview. But what I really want to know is, so overall, did writing this book make you a better gardener? Well, it did. It definitely did. First of all, uh, there were there was my understanding of mycorrhizae. I understood much better how the root system is so critical to a plant's success and that it is well worth tending to the root system. Uh, I now am I'm much better at following instructions about how much soil to put around roots and how much air, for example, should be around roots because roots are, while the green part of the plant takes in carbon dioxide and puts out oxygen, the roots breathe in essence like we do. They take in oxygen and put out carbon dioxide. And if your roots are waterlogged, they are drowning just as we would drown. So much better to underwater than overwater. Uh, I've learned that tropical plants like kumquat trees do not store a lot of sugars in their roots. So if you cut off most of their branches, they don't have any resources to use to produce new leaves. So those were some of the things that I think are making me a better gardener. There's always much more to be learned. And I also became very aware of exactly how pests like aphids harm our plants and became a lot less casual about letting pests continue to reside on leaves. Aphids are expert at putting in what they call stylets, which are mouthpieces, into the leaves and sucking out all of the nutrition, all of the sugars that go into making plants grow bigger uh, and have the energy to carry out their functions. So I'm much more watchful about pests. Well, thank you from all of us who would like to stop killing our plants. We appreciate it. You'll find links to Ruth Cassinger's Garden of Marvels book and her blog on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And we'll be back to talk about gardening in space right after this. On the next episode of Science for the People, we're exploring the night sky and the history of astronomy. Physics professor Alan Hirschfeld joins us to talk about his book, Starlight Detectives, How Astronomers, Inventors, and Eccentrics Discovered the Modern Universe. And we'll speak to stargazer Chris Beckett about amateur astronomy and his work with the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. That's next week on Science for the People, on your local radio station, or online at scienceforthepeople.ca. You're listening to Science for the People, and this is Desiree Shell, joined by Dr. Joya Massa. Joya is a project scientist at Kennedy Space Center and the science team lead for the Veggie Hardware Verification Test. She holds a PhD in plant biology, and she's done postdoctoral work in the areas of food production and bioregenerative life support. She's been interested in growing plants in space since her first agriculture class at age 12. Welcome, Joya. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, why might one want 
to grow food in space? Well, um, there are a number of reasons. Um, you know, one of the, the main ones is, is economics. It costs quite a bit to launch anything from Earth. And seeds weigh a lot less than a lot of other things that you could be launching, like, um, you know, full meals. So if you could launch um, seeds and grow them in space on the space station, or especially as we go farther away from Earth to destinations like Mars or beyond, um, where it costs even more to get food, then you can be a lot more sustainable in, in, and it costs a lot less to get you there. The other reasons could include n- nutrition. Um, the packaged diet that the astronauts eat is very, very good, and it's very diverse. The, the food folks have spent a lot of time creating really interesting recipes, things that store well for long periods of time. But there are still some nutrients, some vitamins that don't store well or that, that might be low in the packaged diet. So we're hoping that with the addition of a fresh salad component to the diet that we can um, add those nutrients and maybe make the crew a bit healthier. Um, when they're in this stressful environment, living out in space and, and their bodies are under a lot of stress, um, you know, anything that we can do to, to improve their health is, is a real benefit. Uh, and then there's the psychological aspects. You know, when they're up there for long periods of time um, with very few resupply ships, they don't get much fresh produce. They get a little bit. Um, when the ships dock, they'll get things like carrots or apples that have been sent up from Earth. Uh, and they really like those, <laughs> and they go very quickly. So having um, fresh produce after you know they've been there for a while could be hugely beneficial, um, you know, just from a, a palate point of view to add that variety to the diet. And then having growing plants around can be very beneficial from a, from a psychological point of view. Having something green and fresh and that they can care for, we think could be very soothing, relaxing. Would growing plants help generate oxygen as well? Exactly. That's very true. The scale that we're doing it at right now with veggie is pretty small. So um, the amount of oxygen that is going to be regenerated in the atmosphere and the amount of carbon dioxide that would be removed is pretty low. But it's, you know, there's some benefit to that. Um, And then as we would increase the number of plants that would be growing, we would start to take over part of that environmental control life support function. So it it means less work for all the pumps and other types of systems that are there doing that function all the time because, you know, they continuously have to recycle the atmosphere in the space station. So what are the challenges to that then? One of the biggest challenges isn't how plants grow in response to gravity because there's been, you know, a lot of evidence that shows if you can get the other environmental conditions right, plants will grow pretty normally. There are definitely differences, but getting the other environmental conditions right is the big challenge. Um, And especially the watering and the oxygen in the root zone. Because roots need both water and oxygen, some air, 
to grow. Um, they, they respire like we do. Plants respire like we do, but they also, in the shoots, they undergo photosynthesis and they, they generate oxygen through that process so they can use that oxygen in their respiration. But the roots are not photosynthesizing. So they need oxygen, but they also need water. And if you've seen the videos of the way that fluids behave in space, you know, water just kind of forms a big floating ball. So getting a mixture of water and oxygen in the root zone is really tricky. And um, in the past, there have been a lot of things that we thought at first might be, you know, related to gravity effects, but they were really just things that were stresses due to flooding or to drought in the root zone because getting that mixture is hard. And there's also other volatile gases in the space station that could also impact plant growth. So the environment is really the biggest challenge. Thermal environment, you know, getting the temperature balanced, getting enough air movement around the leaves, all of those things are pretty tricky. But if you can get those right, the plants themselves will be pretty happy. Well, and you're taking all of that on with the veggie program. Uh, Tell us a bit about that. So veggies, a little bit of a new way to do these things in that it's designed to be really um, a low energy using system. So in the past, a lot of the plant hardware that has been sent, it's got blowers and motors and pumps and liquid nutrient injection systems and it's you know we we have the electric lights as well, the LED lights or they've used other types of lights in the past. And some of these systems have been pretty high energy demand because they're very controlled. They're trying to really control all aspects of the environment, which is very important if you're doing science in space and you're trying to really understand the plant responses. But with veggie, we took a slightly different approach in that we we weren't trying to do as much hardcore science as we're trying to do more food production and some of these psychological value and still do some science but not control the environment as tightly. We want the plants to be part of the environment that the humans are living in. And the ISS, the space station, has a lot of environmental controls itself because, you know, they have to keep everything in balance for the crew to to keep the crew healthy and alive and happy and breathing. Um, So we're tapping into those systems by pulling in the cabin air. So the only parts of veggie that are powered are the lights and the fans that, that pull the air in and the rest of it's passive. And so this is a real experiment on our part to see how well um, things like our passive watering system are going to work because, you know, we're, we're again trying something different with the watering. We're trying to wick water passively to the plant so that they can pull up what they need. And, and that's turned out to be pretty darn tricky to do. Another aspect of veggie that's kind of different and kind of unique is that it's really designed to be sort of Um, something the crew can just see every time they go past. So it has this transparent uh, bellows. Um, It's kind of a clear accordion-like structure, and that allows for a little bit of humidity containment, but the crew can just see right into it and, and watch the plants grow. A lot of these types of plant growth systems in the past have been in, you know, shut boxes with doors that they would have to physically open to look at the plants. So we wanted this to be a much more interactive experience for the crew. 
And, you know, there's pluses and minuses to that. Um, we have some very bright lights because plants need a lot of light. And so this can be a little uh, distracting to the crew. They, they've been wearing their sunglasses when they're working in veggie because they are so bright. So we're seeing how this works and seeing if we need to make any modifications for the future. All right. So you were explaining how they look. Now, they're, you call them pillow packs, correct? So the pillows are what we actually have the the seeds and the media and the fertilizer in. And this is kind of our our way of interacting, you know, between the veggie basic hardware and the plant growth side of it. So the pillows are kind of like our little grow bags that fit into this veggie and they wick the water from the reservoir. At least that's how it's designed. So these are small uh, bags with a, a... a wicking fabric surface on the bottom and there's a little bit of a drip tube inside and you know I filled these up with my colleagues with the media that we're using which is kind of like a kitty litter it's a baked ceramic and then we have some slow controlled release fertilizer in there that slowly gives off um, the minerals the plants need over time and so everything is sent up dry And in those pillows, we have these little fabric wicks where we glue seeds inside. And so the seeds, we orient them so that the roots will grow down into the bag and then the shoots will grow up. And we send them up completely dry and and packed in their little bags so that when the astronauts get them and start to activate the experiment, they essentially just add water. Um, There's a a tube in the side that they can access and they they add water to what we call prime the pillows, fill it up with water and then they attach them um, to the reservoir to hopefully continue to wick water. And you're growing romaine lettuce? Yeah, the first crop that we selected was um, a red romaine lettuce called Outregis, which we quite love the name. It's a, it's just a really nice, reliable variety of lettuce. We, you know, sort of down-selected from about 15 different types of leafy greens and other plants that we checked. And this one, you know, it germinated well, it grew well. Um, lettuce, you know, as we know, is not the most nutritious of leafy greens. But this one is a red romaine, which tends to have higher levels of antioxidants than, you know, the green counterparts. And that's a good thing for crew health. And it also tends to have lower microbial levels than a lot of other um, types of of vegetable crops. So this is sort of the, the native bacteria that live on the leaves tend to be pretty low. And that's something that's really important because, you know, one of the things that we're trying to learn from this initial test is how safe are the food to eat. You know, right now there's no good way to wash your vegetables in space. You can't just run them under a sink. So, you know, we need to either have vegetables that are naturally very clean or come up with a way to clean them on orbit. And I assume that plants that need processing to eat would be less attractive to grow in space then. Well, especially in the near term, you know, I mean, when when we're talking about things like bioregenerative life support, you know, we've come up with ideas where we could come up with an entire diet, an entire food system. And that would require things like uh, soybeans, peanuts for oils and wheat or rice and, you know, different grains. And we can grow all of those things or we, we think we can, but the amount of equipment that you would need to process it is quite large. 
you know, you'd need your, your flour mills and your bread machines and your pasta makers and your tofu presses and things like that, which in microgravity would be really difficult um, on something like the space station, but it would probably be doable on a planetary surface like Mars, for instance. But, you know, that's a lot of mass to launch. I mean, everyone who has a kitchen knows how much all of these kitchen appliances weigh. And uh, the other thing that's really critical is crew time. The crew actually have so much to do that the amount of time they could spend caring for plants and doing food preparation is very low. So for now, we're just looking at fresh crops that they could eat fresh and then um, not have to do a lot of extra handling or processing or, or anything like that. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Dr. Joya Massa, project scientist at Kennedy Space Center, about space gardening. Now, this this is not just an academic exercise, uh, correct? You you actually want to be able to create a regenerative growth system. Well, we're we're doing it in stages. So, in the near term, our goal is to develop um, kind of a pick and eat diet for space station. The the food folks um, have done studies, and they've shown that. For space station and for near term especially, the best combination is to have some packaged prepared food and some fresh salad or fresh fruit to augment it. And then, you know, in long term, you know, it's going to really depend. There are a lot of factors that go into how much plant material you might want to grow um, in terms of your atmosphere, like we mentioned earlier, regenerating your, your oxygen and, and recycling your carbon dioxide. Plants could also be used to help recycle some of the water. Um, so there are a lot of aspects to this that, that we need to, to weigh. Um, we use different metrics to kind of calculate how much you might um, want as plant growth versus how much you might want as packaged food. And things like the, the mass, the energy, the mission duration, the crew time, all of those weigh into these calculations. So you're working at what kind of production level now versus what you would need? Veggie is really just sort of testing the waters. So at most, we can grow about six small plants in veggie, something like a leafy green like the lettuce or, um, you know, Chinese cabbages or, or small small types of, of vegetables like that. If we go to something like a dwarf tomato plant, we could probably only get two or three plants in the veggie hardware. But veggie is designed to be modular. So, you know, in theory, we can send as many veggies up as we, <laughs> as we have room for. And that would be a way to expand the system. But, yeah, you know, ultimately, if you want to really have plants as a part of the diet, you would need a pretty good-sized area to grow, you know, a significant amount of, of fresh vegetables and things. There's a, what they call the South Pole Greenhouse, which is a, a growth facility in the Antarctic Station. Uh, it's pretty large, but they're able to generate, you know, salads and fresh vegetables for all the people down there at the South Pole facility um, over the long winter. So plants take a fair amount of space, but there are ways that you can really pack them in. You could do multi-layer growth. And we also use, we tend to use very dwarf plants because we want plants that don't take up a lot of volume, but are very productive. 
Well, you mentioned the the South Pole Research Center. You you are not the only one doing this kind of research or similar research. Do you have any idea what other groups are experimenting with? Well, we're part of a community called the Controlled Environment Agriculture Community. And so Controlled Environment Agriculture kind of spans everything from, you know, the South Pole Station and, and the veggie in space to greenhouses in, in, in Leamington, Ontario, or, or wherever, growing fresh tomatoes and cucumbers. So we have different amounts of control in these controlled environments. You know, growth chambers and, and growth rooms are, are sort of the ultimate of control where you're doing electric lighting and you're you're controlling the atmosphere and, and injecting, you know, higher levels of carbon dioxide to make your plants grow faster. Greenhouses tend to be a little bit more open, but, you know, in the winter in, in the northern climates, they're more like a growth chamber than, than a greenhouse because there's not that much natural sunlight, you know, and, and there's not a lot of heating going on from the environment. So um, this community is very active and we're always looking at new ways that, that the technology can allow better, more efficient plant growth. Um, we're very conscious of trying to conserve energy, trying to get the, you know, the costs for production lowered and reduce the amount of inputs. One of the great things about controlled environment agriculture is that you can really keep out uh, a lot of pests. There are obviously not a lot of weeds, <laughs> things like that. So you can do very clean agriculture and you can, um, you know, grow plants in ways that you can really optimize the flavor, the nutrition, um, and other things like that. So it's a really interesting area of research. There's a lot of work going on with LED lighting for plant growth, um, you know, ways to select light colors that are specific for getting certain plant characteristics, whether it's better nutrition, better flavor, more attractive <laughs> produce because that's also very important. Irrigation um, and controlling the water, this, the moisture level in, in media is, is a very active area of research as well. Um, and, you know, just trying to get that environment ideal so the plant will grow to the limits of its genetic potential. Well, we, we probably should point out that unfortunately, uh, the crew of the ISS won't even be able to eat the first batch of lettuce, will they? No, that's, that's horrible. That's, well, it's, it's sad, but it's it's also important because we were, were very careful with this. The hardware was sent up very clean. The seeds were sanitized. Um, the media was autoclave. So everything was very clean. But the crew are not, you know, sterilized before they're sent up. So there are some human-associated bacteria that start living in that environment. And... You know, one of the things we're just not sure about is, is there any danger that those bacteria could go and live in our little plant habitat, colonize the plants, and they're in this little warm, humid area, maybe they would grow better and they might potentially be more dangerous to the crew. So for the very first flight, we have the crew cutting the plants and wrapping them and, and freezing them. We're bringing them back um, in hopefully September timeframe and being able to do the food safety analysis here on Earth because there's not really a good way to do that on space station. And we'll look and we'll make sure that there aren't any harmful bacteria on the plants and that they're safe for the crew to eat. 
If we get those data that show that, we'll work with the crew office and the flight surgeons to say, okay, here's what we got. We think they're safe to eat. Um, and we have a second set of plant pillows up there with the same lettuce that they'll be able to hopefully grow and eat. So that's our goal, but we have to collect the data first because, you know, we don't want to endanger the crew. Their safety is, of course, the first priority for everything we do up there. Joya, fascinating research. Thanks very much for being here. Oh, thank you. I appreciated talking to you about it. And that was Dr. Joya Massa, project scientist at Kennedy Space Center and the science team lead for the Veggie Hardware Verification Test. We've linked to her and her work at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, look for the links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Mm-hmm.